Amen. Let's give God praise one more time this morning. Amen. What a beautiful morning we get to join in together this morning. Um, I'm Nick. I'm over all of our worship and our missions. Uh, And this morning, I'm so thankful for Jordan leading us. Um, Thankful again for the opportunity from Pastor Mike to come this morning and preach the word. And uh, just uh, join in together as believers and look upon the scripture and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Uh, In life... Many credit God for the good things, right? You say, oh, man, God's good. You get a new car. What do you say? God is good. You get a new job. You say, God is good. You get a, a boo thing. You say, for some of y'all, you're like, God is so good. Amen. Um, and, and sometimes we also uh, blame Satan for the bad things. And we, we've coined phrases in our culture like, hey, the devil made me. Oh, wow, this is going to be a good morning. Uh, the devil made me what? But this approach to good and evil is just too simplistic. Uh, the cause of evil sometimes from a secular perspective um, has been attributed to a few things, whether it's genetics, mental disorders, social constructs, depression, anxiety. And people say from those things, people do evil things, right? You have a diagnosis and therefore you do evil things. But we have to know this morning, we have to join in and lean in together this morning and and realize that there's a transhuman evil that exists that cannot be eradicated, solved, or fixed by anything to do with a human hand. This evil that we talk about is sin. There's nothing that we can do. We can't work our way out of evil. We can't work our way out of sin. There's nothing that we can do because it is transhuman, meaning it goes past the human ability. And for us to see this truth this morning, um, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 4. We've been going through a series um, called Luke, the Gospel of Luke, for us to believe more. Um, to believe more when it comes to our faith, when it believes, to believe more when it comes to who Christ said he was. To believe more in that of God. And for some context, uh, we, we're at this place, um, about to be in, into the temptations of Jesus. And Jesus had uh, just been uh, baptized. Um, he had been recognized as the, the son of God uh, by God himself saying, hey, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Um, uh, we, we read last week about his genealogy where we saw that Christ was biologically who he said he was. And then Christ was who God said he was. And we go back all the way through the different genealogies. Um, And after this time in the wilderness that we're going to read, Jesus begins his public ministry. But we're going to talk about the time before the public ministry, where he was led into the wilderness. And this wilderness that he was led into, it was barren. It was dry. No animal or man would go to graze or live or build. It was lonely. It was an isolation. But we have to remember, like, this wilderness wasn't a place that Jesus in his uh, flesh was like put there. No, he was led by the Spirit of God, full of the Spirit of God, to this place of wilderness for us to see. Um, And he was met there by a real oppressor, Satan, the father of lies, the deceiver, the evil one, the fallen one, the devil. And and as we're going to read, we we know that Jesus in this time um, had been fasting and praying. So his physical body was weak, right? His physical body was weak. And in this time, Satan tried to hit Jesus with three temptations. And we're going to learn together this morning that Jesus met and overcame these temptations in the same way that we must meet and overcome temptations by Scripture, by the Word of God. And Jesus teaches us three ways on how we can overcome temptation that lead to sin 
so that we as believers can overcome. Let's begin with the first way that we overcome temptation. We're going to be reading um, Luke 1, starting verse 1. Or, sorry, Luke 4, starting verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after his baptism and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during these days. And when they, and they, were, when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. And the first way that we see we can overcome temptation is to reject doubt. Satan begins with Jesus' hunger, and he, and he goes to him, and he tries to raise a doubt within that of our Christ. And he says, he says hey, if you're the son of God, then you can turn this, bread, or this stone into bread. This same feeling, this same emotion was the same emotion that we read back in Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 3, sorry, when, when, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve. And he said, did God really say for you to not eat from this tree? If you're the son of God, you can make these stones bread. Did God really say, and we find ourselves in the same tension of Adam and Eve. The, the enemy soliciting doubt into the heart of our Savior. And he brings to the question, does God really have my best interest at heart? Unlike liberal theologians, cultists, and even those that claim to be Christians but are in heretical groups, Satan and the demons, listen, Satan and the demons never denied the deity of Christ. We read through the scripture where they heard the name of Jesus and they trembled. As we sing the name of Jesus, they're trembling. They, they realized that Christ was who he said he was. But the enemy wanted Jesus to doubt the provision of God. The enemy wanted Jesus to, provide, to, to doubt the provision of God. And this is what we see. Um, he wanted to make these rocks bread. But growing up, going to rabbi school, like we, we, we forget sometimes that Jesus is a real person when we come to church culture, right? That he is this real person that, that, that learned. We read that he, he grew up in stature and wisdom. So he would know the Old Testament. He would have to memorize in times in class this, this Old Testament. And he would remember back to Deuteronomy 8.3, which he says again to the enemy. Listen, man shall not live by bread alone. What doesn't agree with the scripture of God does not come from God. What doesn't agree with what God has said does not come from God. So any thought, any doubt, any, any, any good thing that does not equal and is not, is not understood by the word of God does not come from God. So therefore, we have to know what? The word of God. In his hunger, he tried to attempt him. Um, my family, we ha I, have, I have a wife. I have a six-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old. Um, we have also this, this, these things in our house called George. Like, what is a George? Well, George is a, George is a good name. And we also have a crusty. Um, can anybody guess what these two things are? Crabs. Hermit crabs. Thank you, Liam. I appreciate that. Um, they're hermit crabs. And, and, and uh, my son just got them for his birthday. It was awesome. But George and Krusty um, weren't the first uh, pets welcome to the home. A couple years ago, we got an a, a ugly dog. His name's Brewster. He was, he was really cute back in the day. But he, if you've met Brewster, you know he, he's, he's a mess and a half. He's this mix of everything under the sun. And he kind of looks like, like one of those like, uh, orgs, but like in a miniature version with two little, like four little legs. And he's, he's anyhow. But if you see Brewster, you, you also won't see something in our house, uh, a vacuum cleaner or a, a broom. 
Why? Because Brewster is also our vacuum cleaner in our broom. Um, our, our son, my, my youngest son, Abram, uh, he's at the place now feeding himself, and he's sitting in his high chair. And if you, if, you, uh, if you know anything about dogs, what do they like to eat? Scraps, right? If you have a dog and you're sitting there eating, what normally happens? There's a, there's a, a fork. They're watching the fork. It goes to your mouth. And they're watching the fork. It goes to your mouth. It goes, you know. Um, this has caused a really, really unhealthy expectation for this dog that every time we eat as a family, my youngest son, Abram, loves to throw food down him. It makes him happy. And I'm like, no, no, I pay for that. I already pay for his dog food. He doesn't eat his human food. But with those big bugged eyes salivating from his nasty little mouth, with his ears perked up, all he's doing is waiting for those scraps, right? The whole essence of him in that moment is, is an animal that is hungry. There's an obsession over this food. And the only goal for this dog right now is to get some scraps, no matter how much it costs me, right? No matter how long he has to wait for it, no matter how loud he whines or barks, or even the mess that I will have to clean up after. You know what I mean? If, if you're a dog owner, sometimes they eat something, and sometimes the mess either happens from here or from the dairy ear, right? And so y'all know, like, dogs don't have good stomachs. But we have to know this morning that we are not mere animals that only have a hunger for the physical things. We can't live on what the material alone provides. Now, does, does God allow material things for us to glorify him and to live? We have to have food and water and, and all. Yes, absolutely. But we're not like dogs where that's the only thing that they go after. Or like when you're at the beach with the seagulls, you throw one ship up and all of a sudden the swarm comes and they, bah, 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 bah. They're, they're, they're after it, right? Sometimes you put them in your kid's hair and let them run. Like, go, 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 be free. <laughs> and they're just, they just, they're just diving after it. And they don't care that it's on a little, little person's head. They don't care if they, if they make a mess on anything. They just want that chip. We can't live our lives like we're so dependent on those of the table scraps of this world. Because it will lead us to sin. When we doubt God and take whatever the cost no matter how long it takes, no matter how uh, quick we get it, no matter how much of a mess of it that, that we make in other people's lives, when we take those table scraps and we deny that of the provision of God, we doubt. We take things into our own hands and we succumb to temptation by doubting. We have to flee from this temptation. The enemy sets a table full of rocks all the while our Savior has prepared a feast for us and calls himself the living bread. We are spiritually hungry beings in need of a fulfillment that only Christ alone can satisfy by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are physically and spiritually needy of that of God. Now we look back and we see, we see that Jesus and his power could have easily made this raucous food, Right? He's, he's done many miracles we know from, from turning water to wine. We see all these things. Uh, we see him feeding 5,000, 4,000. But in the midst of his miracles and him, and him declaring who he was uh, by his power and, and drawing people in, um, we read back in John uh, 4.34, the, the disciples are gathering around and they're, uh, they just got done doing ministry. They're chowing down and they look over at Jesus and he's not eating. And like, hey, hey, Jesus, like, don't you need to eat? He's like, no, no, like, don't you, you need to eat. Like, you, you, you must be hungry. And Jesus responds to his disciples, the people that were following him intimately, the people that saw these many, many, many miracles. And he says this, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus knew that God's provision, even when it come down, came down to a meal, would come through. He rejected doubt and he knew that God's love was sure and that his sonship would never be thwarted because it was given to him by God. And we as believers, we must refuse any act outside that of the will of God and, and choose to trust in his loving provision and rest in him. Having failed in the temptation of trying to doubt God's love and promises, Satan took Jesus to the high mountain and showed him the whole earth and all the kingdoms that, that he would offer him. And he offered him, as we look second, to the temptation of compromise. And we read how refusing to compromise empowers us to overcome temptations. Let's read together. I continue on in verse 5 here. Verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, I, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him again, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan claimed this world as his own. Now, he, he, he's been given dominion, but he doesn't own it. He's been given, he's been called the prince of the air, but he doesn't own this world. And, and he twists something that he was even given in, in, in God's grace of, of, of ruling over. And he asks Jesus to bow down to him. And he says, all these kingdoms, he, he puts Jesus in this place, that all these kingdoms will be given to you if you compromise. If you compromise, we see this premise of the word of God in Matthew 6, 24. Um, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. He says you can't, you can't, you can't love God and also money. You can't, one, of, one of the masters is going to get the lesser end of the deal. When Jesus speaks scripture back to Satan, we get a peek into God's sovereignty. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Jesus saw the kingdom that would even be greater than Rome, the kingdom that would be greater than America, the kingdom that would be greater and more beautiful and more lavish than any of the ivory towers in the UK. I mean, he knew. But, but there was a real temptation, a real opportunity for temptation led by compromise to forsake that of the plan of God. Because if he were to build a kingdom here on earth, I think still his heart would be right in the sense of he would do good things, quote-unquote, good, quote-unquote, things, right? Think there, there wouldn't be any warfare, no World War I nor World War II. Prosperity would abound. People could live their best life then and now. It would be a good thing. If Jesus were to forsake all those things and say, yeah, all these kingdoms are mine. All, all, all this is mine. This is how sometimes we view America, church, life. Now, I, I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I love our country. But this place is not our utopia. We have a misconception that this world as believers is our utopia. That it's supposed to be some type of pre-heaven party where the angels dance around and gold dust falls from the sky. And we have the audacity to believe that we can summon God to do and make perfect everything that we demand it to. No, we live in a very, very fallen world. This world is not our home. 
We as believers, we are called exiles, sojourners. The scripture says that life is but a vapor. It's here, then it's gone. But even still, even still, the craftiness of the enemy using power, taking it and dangling it in front of our Savior, if he would have taken this, again, Jesus would, have, Jesus would have been able to cast out demons. We see that, that even, even in Scripture that, that, that the, Jesus says, hey, you've casted out demons in my name, but I don't even know who you are. Lepers could be healed. Water could still be walked on, but all in the name of Beelzebub, Satan. And the life that Christ was destined for, which was real, he lived in humiliation, poverty, he dined with sinners, he was rejected by his own people. And you want to talk about a, a story, a clickbait, a hype note, or wheat, a retweet? He was put on an, an illegal trial. Like a real illegal trial with real judges, with real people saying, yeah, you're the one that needs to be killed. And he's like, I, I, I've done nothing. A real illegal trial. All this could be thrown to the side if he had just t- seemingly taken what was bad and made it good. This would be compromise. But there would be power. But this would be compromise. This would be Christ turning his back on his calling. And the kingdom that Jesus would establish was already foretold of. The kingdom that he would and that he has, it had already been planned through. He'd already established his identity with sinners by baptism. And he knew that this was going to be a path and a placement of lowly, not power, And he knew that it meant the cross, not the crown. He rebuttaled this and he refused to compromise and speaks back the word of God and says, you shall not worship anyone else but God and serve him alone. He knew that the worship of God was exclusive for God himself, not today, Satan. So many times in our lives, uh, from, from a small example of, of us compromising, um, how many of you have ever done a, key, a diet? Let me just say a diet. Raise your hand. How many of you have ever done keto diet where you can have this certain amount of food, whatever? Um, I, my wife and I, we, we spent a little bit too much money on this thing called Nutrisystem about three times. <clears throat> so it tells you that we, we have a problem. Um, but, we, you know, we, we, go, we, go, we go hard for like two weeks. Like, yeah, we're eating the Nutrisystem. I mean, it's these little like, pieces of like cardboard that I'm eating. But birthday month happened in July. You say birthday month? Yeah, yeah, I celebrate the whole month, right? The birthday month happened in July. And um, I was like, you know what? A little bit of sweet won't hurt. A little bit of sweet won't hurt. I compromised. And then from there, uh, the Lord delivered Jared Lamar uh, to me. And uh, he, 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 he's, been, he's, been, he's, yeah, he's been working me out, so it's good. But what's interesting is uh, in our compromise, it's not just the little things. It's the big things. It's things that we take that are bad and we, we make them good, right? In, in our marriages, this could be the case. Listen, I want to be happy and she wants me to be happy. So I'm going to do anything and everything outside of what God's ordained to be marriage. Make myself happy so that she's happy because everybody wants to be happy, right? Happy wife, happy life, happy dad, wife ain't mad, right? It's like, it's like. We, we do these things, but in reality, we'll, we'll chase after anything and compromise. No matter how much lipstick you put on it, no matter how many dresses you play, put, place on it, or perfume, when you do that to a pig, it's still what? A pig. 
It's still a pig. It's still compromise. Jesus refused to compromise. And the conditions on which Satan asks Jesus to worship him, it's so, so telling of the lust and so revealing of our hearts at times. This glory belonged to God and God alone, and there is no worship of a thing in this world that will ever be able to fulfill and satisfy the purpose of who you were meant to worship. I'll say that again. There's no worship of a thing on this world. Nothing in this world will be able to fulfill and satisfy the purpose of who you were created to worship. Now, I don't say that as, as uh, primarily the worship pastor here to get you more excited, to raise your hands more, to stomp a little harder, to clap your hands a little louder, to, to yee-haw it, or to be more reverent in, in God. No. I say this as a man that's been guilty of compromise, of worshiping temporary satisfactions and placing my little G gods on the altar of God, thwarting his place and compromising. In difficult, in, in difficult circumstances, compromise is such a friend, an enemy. We think that God's plan isn't good enough, that he isn't good enough, and we build kingdoms in the midst of our difficulty in the midst of our hunger, in the midst of our fatigue and our pain, there are no shortcuts. Compromise is a shortcut. There are no shortcuts when it comes to the plan of God. We must wait patiently for the Lord to work in the midst of our temptation, and we must be like Christ and refuse to compromise. As we continue to read on um, in verse 9, we see this account we see this understanding that Christ had, had, had been faced with the enemy, but he rejected the doubt. He'd been faced with compromise, but he refused compromise. And now we're going to see how Jesus resisted presumption. Jesus resisted presumption. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command the angels concerning you to guard you. And... On their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him yet again, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Taking Jesus to Jerusalem, Satan had Jesus stand on the pinnacle of the temple. This is the high part of the temple overlooking. And from, from where he was at in Jerusalem, it would, it would overlook this big valley about 200 feet. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of heights and I can't even imagine. 200 feet down. Satan was wanting Jesus in this moment to perform an act um, that, that is, is devastating, to jump, to destroy himself, to throw himself off the pinnacle. This is the temptation led by presumption. The enemy would, would speak scripture to Jesus in such a way, because at that time, it had been the enemy saying, hey, hey, do this, do this. And Jesus said, no, 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 you should worship God. You, you, you can't worship by anything. Worship God. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take some of the scripture. I'm going to twist it just a little bit just for you to listen. We read in verse 10. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, right? And on their hands, they'll bear you up. You won't even get hurt. Your heels won't even touch the ground. This is such a wrong way to view the scriptures, and Jesus knew this was wrong. He knew that the scriptures had been twitted and distorted to fit the evil intention of the enemy. And he knew that we must never put God to the test or to presume on him. Jesus understood it's not for any member of the human race 
to, to, to test God. Even when that member came to himself, the son of God incarnate. But there is a moment when God does command Jesus in death. You're like, wait, 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 what? We read back right before the crucifixion that Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down freely. No one takes my life, but I lay it down freely. This wasn't led by temptation. This was led by obedience. This wasn't led by temptation. This was led by obedience. But the devil knew that if Jesus did this, two things would happen. If, if Jesus would have jumped, if he would have jumped, two things would have happened. He would have been killed by the fall. He would not die on a cross as a substitute for the, for the sin, as the Old Testament had predicted back in um, Psalm 22. And secondly, if Jesus did jump, he would be forcing the hand of God to miraculously deliver him. Jesus would have in that moment ceased to be in complete submission and obedience to the Father for, his, for, the, for, for Christ's will and for his life. When it comes to us, for us to presume, it's, it's such a temptation that is so subtle and it's so dangerous. There are times where believers come to God expressing faith, demanding things for him that were never intended for us. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we've, we come to God sometimes with a lamp and we paint him blue and we demand that he grants every wish that we would ever have like we are the star of Aladdin asking for our magic carpet. This presumption must be resisted as God's people. This is a false view of faith and promoted in its raw, rawest form and the most disgusting form it is. It's called a prosperity gospel. This gospel that says, hey, do all these things. May your life be filled of faith and wealth and prosperity and riches. This presumption places man in the seat that God only alone can have. And when the right formula is used from what these people say, and when the right a lamp is, is, is retrieved from the cave and it's rubbed the right way, here comes Abu, and all of a sudden we're good. And it lets people down and it mislets people and it sends them straight to a place that we call real hell. God submits himself to their will, our will, and he has to respond. When, th when these things don't come true, people abandon faith. They're jaded towards God, Christ, Christianity, faith, church. This is a false view of faith. It's a presumptuous faith. It will ruin people. I have a friend of mine um, from a particular Christian gathering. I wouldn't even call it a church. Um, but he was sharing the story with me when I had first met him and just tried, he, he was playing with me on a worship team. Um, and his mother had been diagnosed with cancer a couple years back. And he was told by his church that he needed to pray for her to be well, which is absolutely true, right? Now here, let me, let me be really clear. Here at Mercy Hill Church, we pray for the will of the Father not knowing what it is until it's revealed, but we do ask for healing. We ask for protection and guidance. We trust that, but, we, but ultimately we submit and surrender everything to that or the will of God. But this faith, this prayer, it was different. It was distorted. He prayed, his church prayed, his family prayed, and unfortunately she did pass away from this very devastating disease that we call cancer. What happened shortly after that, the elders and some of the members of this, this organization, this church, 
sat down with my buddy and, and they said, hey, we just got to tell you, you didn't have enough faith. She, she's, she's passed. She's dead because you didn't have enough faith. You weren't clean enough. You weren't pure enough. Devastating, unbiblical, and an insensitive response. Jesus shows us that this type of presumption and this view of faith is demonic to its core. And thankfully, he shows us how to overcome presumption. That we would not demand anything of God. We ask, we plead, we beg. But we wouldn't ask and we wouldn't demand anything of God, but that we'd ask him what he would demand of me. If that would have been my, my, my buddy's story, I think today he still would have been a part of a church. But now his mind and his, his life has been shipwrecked because of this. This overcoming presumption screams, Lord, your will be done. We put away our own agenda. We submit, we fast, we pray, and we ask the Lord to order our steps as we continue to make plans for his glory. On all three of these occasions, we see this truth. Jesus met and overcame temptations in the same way that we must meet and overcome temptations by scripture. By knowing what he has already said, what he has already put into place, this is how we move from the victim mentality of, hey, the devil made me do it, into Christ's righteousness that it's already been done. We believe that his word is true. That's why we can overcome. And for those that may not know who this Christ is, you can reject doubt. You can refuse to compromise. You can even resist to presume, but all apart from God, it's just mere work. It's, it's good old boy mentality. Scripture is the essential weapon for believers that we must wield and defeat temptations. And so we must know the Bible, and then we must also commit to obey the Bible. This is the reality. There's no temptation that's going to leave us here. So we will always have temptations. Jesus had temptations. We'll have temptations. But we have the word of God. We must trust God's love and reject doubt, submit to his plan, refuse compromise, and resist to presume on that of the promises of God and his grace. Now you have this list. You have these three things. And sometimes when we come to church culture, it can sound like a whole bunch of like, okay, do better things. Like, okay, I need to reject, I need to reject doubt more. Okay, I'm not doubting anymore. No, 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 no. This is not another list that we must do in order for us to stand right before the Lord. No, Christ's righteousness as believers has already been given to us. These are principles, biblical principles for our hearts to worship Christ all the more and for our affections of the Lord to grow deeper and deeper, and for the Lord to be embraced, for his plan to be embraced in our lives, for the obedience of the Lord to flourish, and for our lives to look more and more like Christ. So when a world looks at us, they see Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are worthy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth this morning. And God, we ask as we reflect on your word in a couple of minutes here, 
that you would allow us to be overcomers, God, that you would give us the strength and the power. Lord, thank you for your example in the midst of exhaustion that you overcame temptation. Lord, let us be people that look more and more like you, submitting to your will, obedient to, to what you call us to do, Lord. We love you, we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.